From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. As people celebrate the holiday season, here's a reminder, 1.6 million Americans will likely spend the holidays in a homeless shelter or some form of transitional housing or on the streets. A study by the National Law Center on Homelessness and Poverty found laws criminalizing homeless people have multiplied over the past decade. Other studies find those charges and prosecutions of the homeless does nothing to address its root causes. Atlanta Municipal Municipal Court Chief Judge Christopher Portis launched a new homeless court program to support defendants who are homeless. The program officially launched this month, and Judge Portis is here with more. Welcome. Thank you very much for having me. Pleasure to meet you. So what kind of things were you seeing in your courtroom or in the system that led you to create this program? Well, number one, we see a fair amount of homeless individuals coming through the criminal justice system on a daily basis. And we also know that a part of the reason that they are infracting or coming in contact with the criminal justice system is because of the homeless status. What we wanted to do was develop a program that would deal with the realities of homeless living but also mesh with the concerns of the general public about those who were living on the street and the impact that that was having on general uh, society and the community. So we decided to do what several other cities have done, which is start a homeless court program. What are some of the most common charges or offenses associated with the homeless that you've seen? There are about uh, eight to ten offenses in particular that we see that we almost know uh, are indicative of homeless status. Uh, Pedestrians in the roadway, pedestrians soliciting rider business, monetary solicitation, pedestrian upon a controlled access highway when you see someone at the on-ramp or off-ramp. Uh, Disorderly conduct when they are in conjunction with drug-related offenses like drug paraphernalia, criminal trespass, unauthorized person in a parking lot, and the occupation of vacant or abandoned property. So those all sound like minor charges, but I'm guessing they can add up if repeat offenses. They can add up uh, for repeated offenses, and if your status for homelessness doesn't change over time, you're more likely to recommit the same or similar offenses. So it's not uncommon for us to see what we call uh, our repeat customers coming back through the system because their homeless status hasn't changed, where their living hasn't changed. So some of the offenses that are related to homeless living, we see them reoffending and reinteracting with the system. So what does the program actually aim to do? You're talking about dealing with realities of what happens with people who are homeless and also the surrounding communities and their concerns. So it is really a systemic approach to try to, one, deal with the behavior that is causing interaction with the criminal justice system, and two, deal with the long-term issue of trying to break the cycle of homelessness. And we're going to do that by, one, connecting individuals with resources, but also, two, helping to break down some of the barriers that often the impediment to being able to gain access or entry into programs. So one of the things that we began over a year ago was a program called Operation Clean Slate. It was a precursor to the Homeless Court program where we had homeless individuals coming through the system We tried to resolve all of their open cases in one swoop so that when they were released and went back out, they had a clean slate. When we saw them again, if we saw them again, we could then deal with that particular case and start addressing that particular root cause as to why they were back in front of the court again. How did you come up with these ideas and guidelines? Are they being used in other parts of the country or other municipalities? So San Diego was one of the cities that was on the forefront over 20 years ago starting their own homeless court program. And then several other cities followed suit. Uh, We in part took a page from that book, draw from resources from the American Bar Association, and then quite frankly, hearing from the public. 
uh, we heard from rights groups who were interested and concerned about how homeless people were being treated as they interacted with the criminal justice system. We also heard from the general Atlanta community, from business owners and residents, about the issues that they were experiencing as it related to the individuals who were, unfortunately, living on the streets. This was our effort to try to do something and try to balance those realities for a positive long-term outcome. So this was, these are ideas backed up in some places, but also theoretical in some ways. Sure. You soft-launched in October, now official launch this month. What have you seen so far? Are are there cases or anything that come to mind that show you that it's working or what isn't? Well, one thing that I tell people is I know that this is a long-term game. Um, everyone I talk to, I say, look, talk to me 12 months from now. Let's see where we really are. Uh, one of the things that I know is that we have a population of reoffenders. Let's see what overtime looks like with seeing if we can curb that behavior, seeing if we can reduce the population on the street, seeing if we can get people in long-term, more stable environments. If that long-term goal is the measure, then I think that overall we will be a success. Is it set up as a parallel court or is there a, you know, a separate, this is home court the same way there's family court or you know criminal court yes it actually is a separate a separate internal structure uh, individuals who are determined eligible for the homeless court program they go into the homeless court and they are not on an active court docket so they're not in court or in a court case in the traditional sense they're more in a rehabilitative uh, court to kind of drive behavior, drive participation, and hopefully drive success over the duration of their participation in the program. So individuals who are in the homeless court program are assigned a case representative. That person sticks with them while they're in the program, maintaining communication, also maintaining progress as they move through the various stages of the program. One of the things that we have heard on this program from people in the community is that youth homelessness is growing at a, a faster rate than other forms of homelessness. How is dealing with youth different, or do they qualify for this program? Uh, anybody who offends qualifies for the program. Now, obviously, there is a, an age limit where if an offender is cited for an offense, that they will go through the juvenile system. But I think that that is one of the probably more touching realities of homelessness, the number of not just youth in general, but the number of children who are living on the streets because they have parents or loved ones who, because that is their status, has now impacted them. Uh, so a part of what we're going to be doing is also trying to connect individuals who need family services with family services because that is something that when you talk about breaking a cycle, making sure that if we can get mom off the street, that may also mean that the child won't also be caught up in the same cycle of homelessness and um, interaction with the criminal justice system. I'm speaking with Atlanta Municipal Court Chief Judge Christopher Portis. This month, he launched a program to aid the homeless in Atlanta, the homeless court system. Well, so you brought up a number of things, like a lot of participating organizations. Sure. I know the Atlanta Police Department is working with you on this, the Public Defenders Program. But these are, it sounds like it's pretty intensive. Like somebody is guided through the process in a way, and already many municipal courts are really overburdened. How, how did you sell this? How did you get these stakeholders to, to buy into this program? Well, the first thing we did was we took the approach that we could – do this based on the existing infrastructure that we had and made it a point to say that we would not initially ask for additional resources to launch this. That really um, caught the attention of others to try to come forward and say, well, what can we do to help? Uh, the Public Defender's Office is obviously a big component and big partner in this, one, because they represent 
indigent defendants, but two, uh, because they'll be a part of partnering with these defendants to make sure that they stay on track for ultimate success. Uh, the Atlanta Police Department has been uh, very helpful in speaking with us to help us be able to identify folks on the front end so that we can all be on the same page about individuals who need the most attention and need to be identified from the front door. Uh, the mayor's office has worked with us to connect us with um, Partners for Home to be able to utilize their system and connections with various agencies to be able to kind of tie up all the loose ends with organizations and the pipeline of individuals who need the most attention and need the most help. Mm -hmm. uh, so this has been really a full court press for the Atlanta government system doing something very responsive to try to aid and make a difference for this population that definitely needs our attention. Right. And a lot of challenges there. You know, people without an address telling them about a court appearance, making sure they're on time, um, people who don't have some of the resources that many of us take for granted on a sure. given day. One good thing about the Municipal Court of Atlanta, we are directly across the street from one of the uh, common points of entry for many homeless people. We're right across the street from the Gateway Center. These folks would be able to walk in and meet with their representative at any time of the day as opposed to having to make a particular court time. Mm -hmm. We know that simple things like that are often the reason why people are, you know, especially those who live on the street, uh, don't come back to court and then maybe reoffend or get picked up on a failure to appear warrant. Or fines pile up. Or fines pile up. So what we wanted to do was create a system that was more welcoming to at least come and participate with an eye towards participation is probably a road to ultimate success. Well, you're talking about removing some of the barriers for people who would be uh, in the court, in the court system. But how about for the people who work there and for judges? I mean, you're talking with oftentimes, according to this is the uh, Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, 20 to 25 percent of the homeless population in the U.S. suffers from some form of severe mental illness. You are dealing with a population that has often been isolated and marginalized for various different reasons. How do you as a judge approach that? Well, one is with the, the understanding that that is a reality. Um, and I would say that 25 percent is probably a very generous number, maybe I, on the low I end. I thought it was a low number. Um, the fact of reality is a lot of the individuals that we see not only have mental issues, but some of them have drug and alcohol issues in conjunction with those issues, and they compound, and they compound over time. Right. They're self-treating, basically. One of the things that we want to do through the program is also drive individuals towards uh, mental health evaluations and substance abuse evaluations. Now, we know that the evaluation itself may not ultimately be on the first chance the beginning to recovery. But what we would like to do with as many individuals as possible is get the assessment done so that they can be aware and the system can be aware that they are grappling with these type of issues so that when we see people, especially who reoffend, we're able to identify commonality in offenses and commonality of condition. So what does success look like for this program, Judge Portis? The first goal of success is to reduce the interaction with the criminal justice system, which we think will also reduce some of the concerns that the general community is having with the behavior of some of the homeless individuals. Long-term success, of course, is connecting individuals with more stable environments, whether that's veterans with veteran services, whether that's folks who have gone missing from family back with family, or if that is getting people connected with long-term housing. 
Uh, and, of course, the biggest ultimate goal is to get to a point where we see a near eradication of homelessness on our streets. That is a very ambitious goal, uh, but that's one that we should all be working towards. Well, and how does that connect with people going through the system, addressing some of these root causes, which we know have been going on for a long time and cost a lot of money to fix? Sure. Um, if we can provide the level of attention to individual cases, we believe that that will help drive success as opposed to broad sweep in policy overarching. Uh, this is going to be about touching individuals, uh, in some degrees holding some hand, but also trying to drive accountability from behavior to success of getting folks off the street. I know here in Atlanta and in many places across the state, you know, it's hard to escape the sight of homelessness when you're driving around. I'm wondering for you, uh, as a city official, somebody who's doing something about this, what do, what do you see when you're driving through the city of Atlanta and see there's an encampment I go by every single morning? Uh, what goes through your mind? Well, for me, it's an even bigger issue. I'm a native Atlantan, uh, so I know that Atlanta has been working through uh, various uh, points with homelessness over its history, at least in my lifetime. Uh, when I see somebody living in an encampment or living under a bridge or in a shadow, uh, the first thing that comes to my mind is that that should not be the case. That's the very first thing. The second thing, obviously, as a government official is, what can I do to make that better? Uh, not just from the standpoint of aiding the homeless individual, but what can I do to make it better from the standpoint of society in general? Uh, I think that's all of our charge, to figure out how we can get people from living on the street, regardless of what the root cause is, we shouldn't have people living on the streets, and we should all be working to do something about that reality. Judge Portis, thank you for speaking with us. Thank you very much for having me. It's been my pleasure. He's the implementer of the new Homeless Court Program. Stay with us for more of On Second Thought after a quick break. We're back with On Second Thought from GPB. I'm Virginia Prescott. For people struggling with treatment-resistant PTSD, there may soon be a new, perhaps unexpected, course of care. MDMA, the synthetic substance in the street drug known as ecstasy, when used alongside psychotherapy, is currently in phase three clinical trials and has been given breakthrough designation by the FDA. That's a status reserved for treatments with a significant potential to improve patient outcomes. But MDMA is not the only kind of party drug experiencing interest for its therapeutic potential. Psilocybin, the active ingredient in magic mushrooms, is being evaluated for its potential in alleviating depression. Guided ayahuasca trips are a growing trend among Brooklyn and Silicon Valley elites. And each year, more states legalize medical marijuana, including Georgia, this past year. We're here to talk with us about the growing rise of psychedelics and other recreational drugs to help treat complex psychiatric conditions is Dr. Bodhi Dunlop. He is a psychiatrist and director of the Mood and Anxiety Disorders Program at Emory University. Welcome, Dr. Dunlop. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for being here. And health journalist Will Stone, he's been covering developments in the field. He's a contributor for NPR and Kaiser Health News and is joining us from Seattle. Thank you so much for being with us. Good to be here. Research on the effects of psychedelics is not new, and one of the most notable names in the field was Dr. Timothy Leary. His work on LSD when he was at Harvard in the 1960s was very well publicized because I think he took a lot of it. But that all came to a halt when the federal government listed many of these drugs as Schedule I substances. But here, let's hear from a televised interview with Dr. Leary at the time. Uh, don't you feel that it's, uh, it's wrong to encourage the use of these illegal drugs by college students? Uh, this is, uh, in effect, isn't it, encouraging the breaking of a law? 
Well, I never tell anyone what to do with their body, because what we're talking about here is the first and last frontier freedom, my body. Now, who touches my body? Or what touches my body? Or what goes into my body? That's the last and first uh, frontier of my, uh, my divinity. Certainly an enigmatic guy and a symbol of his time. But, Bodhi, how is today's work different from research done by Timothy Leary and his colleagues back in the 60s? Yes, Timothy Leary uh, used LSD. He also studied uh, psilocybin. Um, the, diff- the, the concept is the same in a broad perspective in that the idea is that these agents enable us to access aspects of our understanding of the world and ourselves that can be guided and interpreted through therapy to uh, address psychological problems, uh, PTSD, depression, and so forth. And that's the overarching idea. The difference today is that we have a much more structured uh, assessment plan with uh, carefully designed clinical trials, a lot of oversight. It's very different in that regard from what was being done in the 60s and 70s. Right. So it's not just like dropping acid and see what happens. Yeah. Timothy Leary is an interesting story. He started out uh, conducting academic research and then really became an advocate really before the data was in to justify this. And and that set a bad precedent for the field and led a lot of people to be very skeptical of these uh, very powerful treatments that we just need to come at with a more constructive and carefully designed approach, which is what's been done here over the last decade. And some very influential research centers like Johns Hopkins, New York University, have had robust programs for psychedelic research. Also, MAPS, this is the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies based in Santa Cruz, California, pioneering a lot of work. How did you and your team at Emory get involved? So MAPS has been a tremendous influence in bringing structure to this field. And, uh, you know, uh, at Emory, I and uh, Dr. Rothbaum have... uh, been researching PTSD and its treatments for a long time. And uh, we have an interest in how MDMA can affect startle response and how people learn to overcome fear. So there's the neurobiological approach of thinking about the specific uh, neurochemistry involved in uh, overcoming fear and learning not to be afraid of specific things. And then there's the broader uh, contextual effect of being in a therapy uh, in an altered state of mind. And these are different ways of thinking about how MDMA may exert its therapeutic benefit. We've taken an initial approach of studying that neurobiological effect on learning to overcome fear directly. And so we're studying healthy controls currently. Okay. So, Will, your reporting profiles a woman named Lori Tipton who enrolled in a clinical trial for MDMA-assisted psychotherapy. First, what was she being treated for? She was being treated for uh, treatment-resistant PTSD. She had had... PTSD for more than a decade, and everything she had tried, um, all the Western forms of medicine, Eastern forms, she had, you know, done things like even so desperate to to treat her symptoms, acupuncture, she went to a, a witch doctor at one point. I mean, she said, I pretty much did every possible thing I could to deal with my PTSD. And yet, you know, nothing was really working or having any kind of durable impact on her symptoms. And she had gone through all sorts of pretty horrific traumatic experiences uh, from discovering a murder-suicide of her family members to surviving Hurricane Katrina and also a sexual assault. And she found MDMA really as the last resort. And when she went into it, she was skeptical. She wasn't sure it would actually even help her. 
Well, so what does a clinical session with MDMA look like? Yeah, so it's important to understand that it isn't just a session. Uh, There's preparatory work where people meet with the therapist at least three times prior to undergoing the dosing session. And then, of course, the dosing session is the most important component uh, where uh, that can last six to eight hours uh, with two therapists, a male and a female typically, and uh, the patient in a very comfortable setting. And uh, during that process, uh, after the dosing, it, you know, the effects begin to occur about 30 to 60 minutes and then have peak effects around two to, two to three hours later. And it's a very unpredictable experience. Patients will have a variety of different emotional reactions. And the structure of the therapy is such that it's designed to alternate between periods of introspection where people wear eye shades, listen to music, and really inwardly focused on what thoughts and experiences and perceptions are coming to mind. Interact, and that's alternating with times of talking with a therapist to process this information. And so this goes on for several hours while the person is in this altered state of the effect of the MDMA. And it's important to understand that there are then subsequent what we call integration sessions, three sessions with a therapist after a dosing session, to further understand and integrate the insights obtained with MDMA into the meaning for their lives and how it affects their symptoms and how they've been going through their lives with this illness. So will there be conversation between the person who's dosing and the therapist at the time, or they're just there bearing witness? Oh, no, no. So the therapists are active in the sessions with MDMA. Uh, It's important to understand that different psychedelics are used differently in the different therapies, Mm -hmm. but with MDMA, it's it's an active back and forth, not continuously. The, The patient's encouraged to be introspective and pay attention to their experience without talking for periods of time. And then to come back out of that and talk with the therapist and process what they're going through. Well, and I think I just want to stress that this is in a therapeutic situation. This is not just I'm I'm having PTSD symptoms. I'm going to take MDMA. Right, exactly. And this is yeah very important to understand that this is a structured therapy, and it's been carefully developed over the last uh, two decades, really. Um, much more structured than what was done in the past. And that way we feel we can have a better sense of how this medication can lead to improvements and integration of understanding. Well, what was the effect on Lori Tipton? Lori's experience was she had never actually done MDMA before these clinical trials. She was in one of the phase two clinical trials. And she, the first session, she took a smaller dose, the next session, uh, you know, a bigger dose, and then, and then had a third session, medication session. And um, she found herself suddenly able to revisit these incredibly upsetting, traumatic moments, uh, like finding her brother who had overdosed and died when she was 20 years old, without the same kind of panic response, the same kind of fear response. And uh, it allowed her to then have conversations and kind of this integration that was mentioned, this idea that she can return to the moment of trauma and yet it doesn't have the same panic, the same fight or flight response that has become so conditioned with her. And through each session, she was able to unpack more of these memories. And uh, by the third session, uh, you know, guided by her and her her own desire to actually reach these hard moments, because this is kind of one of the the misperceptions, perhaps, you know, people think of MDMA, they think of ecstasy, and they think, oh, well, you know, you're going to go in and have a, a fun party session. Um, it, these are really tough experiences where people are going back to these deep moments of trauma and working through it. 
And that's what she did. And she did it even with her sexual assault uh, at the end of her third session, which was really the hardest thing for her to tap into and address. Will Stone there. He's a contributor to NPR and Kaiser Health News as a freelance health reporter. Also with me, Dr. Bodhi Dunlop, director of the Mood and Anxiety Disorders Program at Emory University. He researches the therapeutic effects of psychedelic drugs like MDMA. So, Bodhi, what are you hearing there? The, the, the case that Lori went through and other people have gone through, what is going on neurologically in the brain when these kind of psychedelic experiences help people confront traumas? Yeah, so uh, we can think about the neurobiology in terms of the neurochemistry, and we can think about it in terms of neurocircuitry or how the brain is functioning and communicating within itself. If we think about the neurochemistry, what MDMA does is it is basically primarily a serotonin releaser. It floods the synapses of the neurons with serotonin, but also dopamine and norepinephrine to a lesser extent. So those are the feel-good chemicals. They, they create, they control firing of neurons. Some of them create good feelings. Some of them create anxiety. Uh, some of them are important for learning. They have a variety of different effects. Um, so at that level, we know that the MDMA is doing that acute increase in these chemicals. It also increases oxytocin, which is an important hormone for bonding. The bonding yeah, exactly. So at, that's what's happening at that level. And at the level of neuroimaging or neurocircuitry, we don't have a lot of data yet, but it looks like it reduces the amygdala, which is the brain center responsible for fearful responses. So when you have a, a fearful fight-or-flight response that's being initially triggered by the amygdala, that is reduced in response to uh, angry faces. So people can tolerate stimuli that otherwise might be fear-inducing uh, much more easily. So this is the neurochemistry. This is the neurobiology. But really what it comes down to is people can have – MDMA induces feelings of compassion for themselves and for others – it also increases the ability to talk, as Will was saying, about previously avoided traumas. One can feel safer talking about them without having this overwhelming fear response. It also creates feelings of trust. That's the oxytocin effect, perhaps, where the therapist can – the patient feels freer to open up to the therapist. Um, so these, these effects have – enable therapy to work when it can't otherwise work. And that's the key that we think MDMA does. By itself, it's not going to fix anything. But in the setting of a uh, therapeutic approach to the traumas people have experienced, the data is very encouraging that it can improve the effects of the therapy. So we're talking about treatment for PTSD. Is it that somebody gets treated, goes through these sessions? Is that something that continues like uh, some therapeutic or talk therapy sessions? Right. The, the, the trials that have been done and the way the current phase three trials are being done is it's three sessions of dosing. Two so or it's three. not like someone's going to get an MDMA prescription in the future? No, they never leave with MDMA. It's right. dosed only at the site three times, uh, one month apart. So three sessions over three months. And uh, the long-term data up to a, well, a year and even up to three years out show a general sustained benefit. Like the benefit is sustained over time. The drug, the process of the therapy is helping people come to a new understanding of their trauma and been able to manage it in ways that doesn't produce the symptoms that are so distressing. And that, that, that learning is enduring. And that's what's so exciting about this. And well, I want to just point out kind of how that looks, because this is really what jumped out to me as someone who covers healthcare um, and treatments for psychiatric conditions. People were actually having fewer symptoms and getting better over time after the treatment, a year out of treatment, than they were three months after. So that's just a pretty remarkable uh, data point. 
And the way it looked like with Lori was really interesting because she talked to me about her experience in the months after her treatment and the kind of integration that she kept doing even after she was outside of this more structured setting. And she talked about these moments where her PTSD would set in little triggers, little stimuli that would create fears of panic. She was never even able to really get to a point where she could unpack it. She just kind of accepted certain parts, certain things in her life would make her, would provoke terror. Mm -hmm. And she told me about this amazing story where she always would have this kind of overwhelming anxiety when she returned home at the end of the day to her house. She had two dogs. She loved her dogs. But some reason, the scratching of the dogs and the barking and the noise as she came into the house provoked dread. She just didn't know why. She hated it. She would sometimes not go home until her partner would go home because she didn't want to have that experience. A couple months after she had had this treatment, she's walking home. She's getting close to her door. She's starting to anticipate these dogs. And suddenly she has a moment where she connects it back to this uh, terrible memory that she had when she discovered her mother and uh, two other people dead in a murder-suicide. Mm-hmm. And in that moment, in that there had been dogs in the house, and they had been scratching and making noise. And that had implanted this memory in this, in this very visceral response for her. And she was never even able to kind of make that connection. And then after her treatment, suddenly she, she realized what was happening, and she was able to then address it. And uh, that's to me, really drove home the idea that this isn't just a one-time thing. This isn't just happening in a certain setting. It, th- the benefits accumulate over time. That is a powerful story. And I do want to hear more about experimentation and, and examples of that. But we're coming up against a break. So we're going to pick it up afterwards with more of this conversation. But before we go, I want to ask you, Bodhi, if you when you first started in psychiatry, did you have any idea that this is where your career would lead you? No, I had no idea. Yeah, I mean, that's... I grew up uh, as a high school in the 80s, and it was Say No to Drugs and the Nancy Reagan campaign, and I was a good student, <laughs> so <laughs> I took the lessons to heart. Uh, but uh, I'm very open to the idea of this uh, therapeutic transformation that can occur because I just see so many patients who get stuck. And they do their best in therapy. They do their best with medicines. And we still can't get to where we need to be. So I think this is very exciting. We're going to continue this conversation with Dr. Bodhi Dunlop, Director of the Mood and Anxiety Disorders Program at Emory University, and with Will Stone, contributor to NPR and Kaiser Health News. He's a freelance health reporter. We're talking about the potential therapeutic effects of psychedelic drugs like MDMA, psilocybin and ayahuasca. We'll be right back with more of On Second Thought. Stay with us. We're back with On Second Thought from GPBM Virginia Prescott, picking up on a conversation about the use of psychedelics to treat complex psychiatric conditions. My guests are Dr. Bodhi Dunlop. He's director of the Mood and Anxiety Disorders Program at Emory University. Also with me, Will Stone. He's a freelance health journalist who contributes to NPR and Kaiser Health News, among others. But he has been covering developments in this field. Before the break, we spoke about the use of MDMA to treat PTSD, but want to broaden it out to other drugs. Researchers are now looking into psilocybin. This is the active ingredient in so-called magic mushrooms. And they're looking at it in the context of depression. Now, the science is still in its infancy, but how might psilocybin disrupt brain pathways in depressed patients? 
Yeah, so psilocybin differs from MDMA. Uh, psilocybin is more of a classic psychedelic. It binds to what's called serotonin type 2A receptors. Um, these seem to be important for a variety of things in the brain, including memory formation um, and overall activity in uh, regions of the brain related to emotion. So uh, these drugs do produce – these classic psychedelics like psilocybin produce different effects than MDMA. More, more noticeably, they have greater levels of auditory or visual hallucinations or illusions and mystical feelings, connectedness to oceanic feelings or noetic experiences where people have new understandings or insights into the world. So it's a more revelatory experience than is with uh, MDMA typically, mm. although people you know, differ in how they experience these, these substances. Noetic? Noetic, yeah. It's the idea of having a revelation or a deeper insights that you never had before, like a, an unveiling of the way things seem to work, which is important when we think about what this drug is being used for, which is depression, where we think people really get stuck. They get very rigid ways of processing information and they can't seem to break out of it through the insights that can be achieved with drugs like uh, psilocybin. This may be possible to break out of these rigid forms of thinking. So you mentioned the mystical feelings brought about by psilocybin, and there is a strong historical connection between the use of psychedelics and the more mysticism-based practices in Native cultures, especially with ayahuasca in South America. Will, as part of your reporting, you spoke with Juliana Willers. She's a clinician in Arizona involved in using psychedelics to help treat patients. Here she is on the importance of placing this therapy in the context of indigenous history. Indigenous cultures all over this continent have been altering their consciousness with one plant or another for a very long time. A lot of that knowledge was lost due to colonization and repression. There's over 144 psycho known psychoactive plants throughout this continent. I think in Europe there's less than 50, but people have forgotten that, that tradition. Ultimately, how different are these new research trials from old shamanistic style practices in, in, in some ways? Are we reinventing the wheel? Yeah, I think that's a really interesting cultural question. I mean, the, the key uh, shared thread here is that under the traditional peoples, again, use was associated with a specific ritual to achieve a certain outcome or understanding. And we have a more intellectualized culture and structured in terms of what you do in therapy as, a, as opposed to a more mystical thing. But it's still the, a process, a cultural process being applied to make use of the effects of the drug. It's not just indiscriminate use for pleasure. It's to achieve a certain end, either whether it's using a shaman or whether it's with a therapist. That, that's the shared idea is that the drug opens up a path which you can then be helped to follow with the aid of others. Well, what did you hear from Juliana about the experience of working with patients using ayahuasca? So Juliana is actually uh, undergoing or will undergo uh, the MAPS training for MDMA, but she had been involved in the psychedelic scene for a long time. She was from Northern California originally. She actually was uh, worked at Burning Man uh, with MAPS where they do these kind of safe spaces where people who are on psychedelics can uh, and or maybe need support or structure can go to. So she had been working in this community for a long time with all sorts of psychedelics. And her point is that, you know, she sees in her own community the kind of absence of these rituals and the what is left um, when you remove these structures where people can work through 
different issues and have a sense of community. And she talked uh, very movingly about seeing, you know, addiction and substance use in her indigenous community and how she saw that as that they were lacking ritual and that they were lacking the kind of practice that used to bind them together. And so she's very passionate about the idea that as psychedelics become available, uh, you know, presumably in the coming years, and perhaps the FDA starts to approve different substances, that the Native communities also get a part of that and have access to it. I mean, you know, MDMA is not a traditional classic psychedelic, and yet, you know, if you're going to undergo this MDMA-assisted psychotherapy, it's going to be thousands and thousands of dollars. So even if it works really well, if you can't get it to the people who have not had access to this or maybe had access to some of these kind of substances in the past and now don't, you know, what good is it doing for the broader public? You mentioned Burning Man, which is this festival in the desert annually. You know, people dress up. There are a lot of drugs, uh, as far as has been reported. And that brings up an interesting question about the associations or judgments we make about the kinds of people who use psychedelics versus those who don't. So, so Bodhi, how do you deal with that in your research? Well, I, I, in my mind, I make a big distinction between recreational use for self-exploration or simple pursuit of euphoria versus treating illness, psychiatric illness. And that's really what we're talking about when we're talking about how these drugs become uh, a path to legal use and the therapeutic uses. So the drugs can do two – can serve two purposes, healing and exploration of what existence is. We're talking with a couple people who are keeping a close eye on what is going on in experimentation of psychedelic drugs for therapeutic reasons. Dr. Bodhi Dunlop is with us. He's director of the Mood and Anxiety Disorder Program at Emory University. He's a psychiatrist and a clinician there. Will Stone is also with us. He's a freelance reporter based in Seattle. Bodhi, your research has mainly focused on MDMA for PTSD. Now you're looking into psilocybin for depression. Beyond those two conditions, what are some other potential therapeutic applications that are being looked at uh, for these drugs? Yeah, so uh, we think back to what the agents actually induce. So MDMA really helps people connect with other people and with themselves. So MDMA has really been quite tightly focused on PTSD with a little bit of research lately in social anxiety in autistic individuals. Um, but psilocybin has a lot broader application and most of the research has actually been done looking at uh, anxiety and depression about end of life or in people with severe medical issues such as cancer or terminal illnesses and how do they cope with the, their impending uh, demise in the face of their medical illness. That's where most of the research has been done. There's been research in depression as we've talked about. But there's also very interesting work in addiction. So some very encouraging preliminary data on uh, a tobacco dependence, smoking cessation keeping people, I think the most recent study was 60% of smokers were tobacco-free a year after the treatment. No kidding. Yeah, amazing. And then also with alcohol abuse, uh, alcohol dependence, um, uh, success rates holding out to six, uh, six months there. There's also ongoing research at the University of Alabama on use for cocaine addiction, which be, would be an enormous breakthrough because we have no approved treatments for that. Um, as an interest in use in OCD, the idea, again, of breaking up these rigid cognitions, repetitive thoughts that people are stuck in. So I think we're really right at the front end of understanding all the potential therapeutic uses 
of the classic psychedelics like psilocybin. Yeah, so clearly a lot of potential for future research and, and use. But we have to remember that these drugs are Schedule One substances under DEA classification. So that means, according to the federal government, both MDMA and psilocybin are believed to have no medical value and a high potential for abuse. What kind of hoops do researchers need to jump through to do studies with them? Yeah, so uh, the research requires a Schedule One license. So the DEA will issue to certain investigators a license to investigate the medications. You have to have a specific protocol. You have to have uh, an ethics board, an institutional review board, make sure that everything is being done in a proper way that maximizes safety for the participants in your research. But uh, that, that's the general procedure. In that sense, it's not any different. The additional hoop is you uh, need to show to the DEA that you have these additional safeguards in place for storage of the drug and uh, the safety of the participants. Where do they get the drugs? There are manufacturers such as Fisher that can manufacture the uh, compound. Uh, you know, the chemical manufacturing companies can make a human-grade drug. Well, and you're in the people that you've spoken to, both researchers and practitioners and people who have been, let's say, clients of those, what is the kind of range of conditions and experiences that you've heard from people? Well, you hear people seeking seeking out psychedelics for everything from PTSD to anxiety, major depressive disorder. I mean, that's what the psilocybin clinical trials are looking at right now. Um, and also, just a whole host of things. I mean, uh, it's amazing how the coverage of psychedelics, the kind of fact that it's really risen into the public consciousness in the last couple of years, has just propelled a huge amount of interest, I think, in people who probably would have had the idea, you know, maybe five, even ten years ago, this is for hippies, you know, this isn't really my scene. Um, I talk to people who are involved in uh, maybe the alternative, you could call it the underground kind of psychedelic community, more informal gatherings. And I hear that they have, you know, 10 people joining the groups every day to learn more. And that a lot of these people, probably like 70 or 80 percent of them, have some kind of psychiatric condition that they're looking into. Uh, mothers coming to learn about, you know, how could I even help my child, which is, you know, the ethics of that are questionable. But the idea is people suddenly see this new possibility for psychiatric treatment and one that doesn't go through the conventional pharmaceutical uh, kind of route. And uh, there's a huge outpouring of interest. Now, the catch is this stuff is still not going to be widely available for people for quite a while. So, People are going to seek it out in uh, more informal settings rather than enrolling in a clinical trial, which is pretty hard to get accepted into. Any special considerations you take into account for recruiting patients for studies like these? Yeah. Um, so qualifying for a clinical trial can be challenging. So we at Emory are a site for the psilocybin study. And to be in that study, you have to have a history of not responding to two to four antidepressant medications. So we're looking for people who are what we call treatment resistant or for whom the medicines haven't worked. But a challenge is that people to enter a trial like this, to use a drug like psilocybin, need to be t taken off or tapered off their existing psychiatric medications. And even when medications may not be working great for someone, sometimes they're still putting a floor under their mood they don't recognize. Mm -hmm. And when you take it away, worsening can occur. So that has to be done very carefully. And then, of course, another challenge to these trials. So the psilocybin trials have been done internationally. But in the U.S. specifically, we're not allowed to enroll people who've used psilocybin previously. 
which is unfortunate because uh-huh. they would know the experience in Canada, in uh, uh, Europe, Israel. They, that requirement is not there. So there are hoops to get through. We certainly need to follow the rules, but uh, sometimes things can be done to uh, help people qualify for the trials, such as we will taper them off their medications if they need to not be on a medication. So I'm hearing from you that you know there is a procedure, there's a process, it's very well regulated for clinical trials, for these experiments. But I'm also hearing from Will that, you know, a lot of people are hearing about this and thinking, okay, I'll take MDMA in an informal setting. You've, of course, made the distinction, but realistically, how likely are we to see this become legalized, you know, especially in a state like Georgia, where legalizing medical marijuana was a battle in itself? Well, so, okay, but medical marijuana for psychiatric conditions does not have a strong evidence base. I think marijuana is a poor example to consider for what we're doing with these psychedelics. We don't really have clinical trials, randomized placebo-controlled clinical trials, that marijuana is effective for psychiatric disorders. We just don't. The, the politics got way ahead of the science. That is not happening with these psychedelics. The psychedelics, the drugs will not be approved unless these phase three trials, if we just stick with MDMA for a minute, are, are positive. And then, but once a drug is approved by the FDA, usually the insurance companies will follow on and cover that as a treatment. So you still have to have health insurance, which is another huge issue of its own. But for those who do, the drug will would become available and probably affordable through that kind of treatment application, just as people can have psychotherapy covered now through their insurance. So Bodhi has been working with this for a long time as a psychiatrist. How about for you, Will? What do you think? What, what did you find most surprising about this movement and maybe the thing that people don't understand? My My biggest take home was that People are really eager for new models, new ways of treating different mental health conditions. And people feel stuck. They feel frustrated. And those are the people overwhelmingly when I speak to who are seeking out psychedelics. And these are people who have done their research. You know, it's not necessarily – they're not wandering into this just kind of hearing one story about it. You know, they're actually following the research and the clinical studies and what's happening, you know, in Emory and elsewhere. And they are just ready for some kind of treatment that feels that it does more than simply relieves the symptoms but gets at the root cause more. And that's what I heard from from Lori Tipton and that's what I hear from people who are seeking out ayahuasca treatments – in an underground setting, it's mostly driven by a frustration with the lack of options and a sense that this really is going to change how we understand these conditions in a very significant way. Yeah, and just to jump in, I mean, these options offer a growth experience to move beyond the illness. And that happens today with psychotherapy. I mean, without medication, you can go through psychotherapy and have growth experience or learn to manage symptoms. But for people for whom that's not effective, the current treatments are frustrating. They're chronic. They come with side effects. You feel like you're trapped by the medicine or you just have to take the medicine. And this is a totally different model where you take a few doses and you are altered in in a persistent and positive way uh, in relating to the trauma or challenges you faced in your life. Bodhi Dunlop, he's director of the Mood and Anxiety Disorder Program at Emory University. Dr. Dunlop, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. And Will Stone, he's a freelance health reporter. He files for NPR and Kaiser Health News. He's based in Seattle. Thank you so much for your time.
Thank you for having me. Now you can find more information about this research at our website, gpbnews.org. And we're evoking some of that South American ritualization with Ramiro Musetto's Javantes. Well, as we wrap up today's show, we are thinking about holiday traditions and would love to hear yours. Are there things that you always, always do around the holidays, big or small, maybe your whole family, maybe just you? We would love to hear them. Join the conversation on our Facebook group, GPB Radio's On Second Thought. You can go to Twitter at OST Talk, email us on second thought at gpb.org, or better yet, leave us a message at 404-500-9457. Who knows? We may just play it on the air. On Second Thought is produced by Amelia Brock, LaRaven Taylor, Priya Mahadevan, and Jake Troyer. Jesse Neiswanger is our engineer. Amy Kiley is senior producer. Mary Lynn Ryan is our executive producer. I'm Virginia Prescott. Thanks so much for taking some time to listen to On Second Thought.